So today I'm joined in the reading corner by the award-winning poet Joseph Coelho. Uh, Joseph came to writing poetry from the world of performance poetry, working with the brilliant spoken word troupe Apples and Snakes. He's, his debut collection for children, Werewolf Club Rules, was picked up by Janetta Otterberry and published by Frances Lincoln. It went on to win the Clipper Award for the Best Children's Poetry Collection in 2015. A further collection of poems, Overheard in a Tower Block, was published by Otterberry Books in 2017. Joseph has also written poetic text for picture books, including Luna Loves Library Day and Luna Loves Art and The Hairdo That Got Away. And there are two large format collections bringing to Together, Joe's love of performance in Poems Aloud and his love of nature in A Year of Nature Poems. Today we're going to be talking about his latest book, The Girl Who Became a Tree. Welcome Joe. Hello. Uh, Joe, I've actually called this book a verse novel, but I don't know if that's how you would describe it. Oh yeah, I, I was kind of going back and forth because I, I feel like it occupies a space in between verse novels and poetry collections because I find I love verse novels and I but I find they uh they, they have to kind of split up prose to keep that story going um and I wanted to create see how far I could create a narrative using poems so as much as I was able to I tried to keep poetry at the forefront so that they are individual poems that tell a story as opposed to a kind of rolling uh, narrative written in a, in a verse format if that makes sense. Mm. It's really interesting to hear you say that because I felt slightly dissatisfied calling it a verse novel um, for the reasons that you've said really I felt that I could take some of those poems and that they stood alone as poetry and yet there is obviously a narrative arc that runs over the whole uh, book so I was quite you know searching around for the word to use to describe it really. Yeah, so I was trying to think of like is this a different type of form um, but yeah I was, I was searching myself for what what is it and, and ended up with a story told in poems. Yeah that's good enough for me. Well off the yeah <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> um, I wonder if we can talk about the idea for writing. Um, it's a very rich book it covers the subject of loss, grief, guilt, love, growth, restoration, nature, myth. But how did it come to take shape in your imagination? Well, these are all kind of themes I've, I've explored in some of my other work. And you know, coming from a, a background of playwriting, I've, I've written plays for children and adults that explore those themes. And I guess they're things I just keep coming back to because I feel like you can only... Um, satisfactory explore love and growth and restoration by looking at their opposites. Um, I feel like that's the best way to to really unearth what these things are about. Like love becomes so much richer when you're talking about it in the in the context of loss and uh, growth becomes more important when we consider guilt or or thinking about our 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 actions and how we change our actions that leads into the growth um, and so I was very kind of keen to show the the light and dark 
and feel like and hope that it's more satisfying when you go through that process of, of, of following a narrative of, of in this case Daphne going through through loss and grief and hurt and guilt and upset and then hopefully coming out the other end with love and restoration and growth. Perhaps we for listeners who probably haven't yet read uh, the book perhaps we should give them a little bit of an insight without giving too much away can you tell us about uh, Daphne and her story? Uh, Daphne is a uh, 14 year old girl who's a, a bit of a latchkey kid so you know mum's off at work mum's a, a nurse and uh, Daphne is often home alone after school but in that time she often goes to the library to to hang out until closing until until mum gets back so she's a regular at the library um but she has suffered a loss her father passed away a while back and we get the story from Daphne's perspective but we also have the the librarian who knows Daphne and talks about what she was like before she lost her father um and has seen this change in her as she's become more withdrawn um so she's in the library and her phone goes missing and she follows a trail uh, whilst looking for her phone in the library to a hole in uh, one of the bookshelves and that hole leads to a a mythical magical forest um, where she becomes trapped and enticed and tempted by an evil creature who uh, wants to keep her there for his own reasons. So we'll come on to uh, some of those things that you've mentioned in that introduction in a moment. Um, But perhaps it would be a good point now to pick up this recurring theme in some of your work about the importance of libraries, which I know that you've campaigned for, and also Mm. the idea of the forest. And they seem to grow together in this brilliant extended metaphor through uh, the book. Can you tell something about Tell us something about how those two things came to be so interwoven. These things have always kind of been associated with, with childhood, or kind of exploring trees and where I used to love climbing trees and, you know, running through bushes. Me and my friends would, would play games in, in the parks and areas. So when I think of childhood and the things that made me happy and the places where I found comfort, um, I'm often returning in my memories to to nature and libraries and, and reading and imaginative play. So these things tend to uh, come together in my work and I, I can't quite get them out of my system. It's great that uh, so many of the um, words and the language around libraries do lend themselves to a discussion about trees and nature as well, right down to the yeah. You know, uh, the leaves on the tree and the leaves in a book. It's just, uh, they're meant to be together, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's just so lucky, isn't it? I mean, when you think that there was a time before books and that books are a technology, it's kind of amazing to think that there's this, this wonderful synergy between the natural world and, and books. And with all our advances, um, with, with, we still prefer to sit down with a book. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not anti, you know, e-books and stuff. I quite like the the old e-book and uh, audio book. But there's nothing quite like flicking through the leaves of a book, and it's just so bizarre that these these things, this love of knowledge and this love of nature, are are so intertwined in our lives. I think that's that's wonderful, a wonderful lucky event. Mm-hmm. 
While we're talking about nature, you obviously published your Year of Nature poems, and it really shows that nature exists, as you've described, in urban spaces. Uh, we, we are not often presented with, with nature as we most often see it. You know, the sort of the, the scrublands, the, the bushes that are underneath uh, advertising billboards and, you know, the, the things growing in between the cracks on our way to school or on our way to work. It's often these idyllic views. I think from where I was coming from, was uh, what I had in my mind was more of that estate <laughs> and the nature that you can that you find hidden on, on the outskirts and at the periphery. Let's come back to the girl who became a tree and Daphne's story. Um, as you've described it, it's a, an intimate story, but there are mythic references and allusions throughout which I think elevate the story and it feels like a new myth that is being created. Obviously, there's the uh, very explicit link to the myth of Daphne and Apollo. I personally took lots of other elusive uh, references from it. Uh, in my mental imagery, I went to Red Riding Hood, perhaps Alice in Wonderland, Pan's Labyrinth. Um, and I wondered whether this was a conscious thing in your writing or perhaps after having written it, whether you noticed that some things had risen from your subconscious into the writing of this story. I think a bit of both like I all those references you mentioned I I love like I'm a huge fan of Pan's Labyrinth I love fairy tales uh yeah I love Alice in Wonderland hence the um the yellow brick there's a yellow brick, uh, brick road reference in the book but there's also references to a, a spoil of golden balls found in the forest which is reference to um the princess and the frog fairy tale because I part of me kind of believes that the, this, these fictional landscapes that we are familiar with and that, you know, that we invent are, are connected in a space and that there are always these links between them. And so it was my attempt to recreate that, that sort of nowhere forest, which contains all of, all of these things where Little Red Riding Hood would have walked at some point. Yeah, it was almost like the fictional woods of the mind. Um, so yes, it was it was conscious and a process as well of kind of pulling on threads that that naturally arrive as throughout the writing. One of the things that struck me when I read the story the first time, I read it very much as being about the girl Daphne. Uh, when I read it a second time, I was much more in tune with the kind of metaphoric element, and it was almost like Daphne could have been a metaphor for nature herself in need of healing. Uh, again, mm. that might just be a very personal reading. I don't know what you thought about that. Oh, I love that. I, I love that as, as an idea, especially at the moment when, you know, the world needs as much help, the natural world needs all, all the help it can get. Um, I hadn't kind of consciously thought of it like that, but now I'm sort of thinking about towards the end without giving too much away, but, the actual environment she's in starts to change. Um, the woods start to change as a result of her actions, um, which I guess you could you could view as a, a process of of the natural landscape uh, reacting to her as the as as the human or as the symbol of kind of human activity. You very kindly said that you read a little bit of uh, this to us today, and I wonder if this is quite a good time to pause. And what about me? Seems like a 
uh, a section that could stand on its own. Yeah, no, I'd love to. Um, what about me? I've been alone for time that refused to tick. Trees can live without their cause. It's their thick skin that keeps them going. I learnt loneliness in the abscission of family and friends, found peace in the company of one, made the stars my companions. They twinkled at every joke. I whispered secrets to the scents of honey blossom and lavender that they could never let slip. I found comfort in the wind. She would listen with breezes and empathize with storms but the stars held elevated conversations that I couldn't join. Aromas wafted where I was unable to follow. The wind's banter would often dictate. Then you arrived with your laughter and smiles and anger and fury and bad habits and beauty. And the world grew. My center started to fill. And now you're leaving. Gosh, I feel I need to be quiet after that. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, thank, you. thank you so much for reading that, Joe. Oh, my pleasure. Um, you touched earlier on this creature that lives in your dark forest. He's called Hock. And he's yeah. a little bit Lovecraftian to me, certainly darker Ooh. than the Greek myth in many ways, maybe even pagan. Uh, can mm. you tell us a bit about Hock? Well, Hock is a, a, a character that exists in my own sort of private universe of, of worlds that I, I'm often sort of thinking about. And I, it's so interesting that you said it's Lovecrafting because I, I love Lovecraft for all his faults. <laughs> but um, I, I, yeah, read a lot of, of Lovecraft and this idea of these, there being these ancient gods, these sort of dark ancient gods that, that can rise up. I, I see Hock as um, almost like a a forest spirit but something ancient that has that has been there for a long time but is himself part of a of a larger narrative with he has his own his own people to answer to which i i plan on exploring um later on but yeah he is a he kind of for me he was sort of symbolizing ego or the id um in that he is that that part of us that wants to hang on that wants to wants immediate satisfaction that uh, needs to be sort of uh taken away from the pain that won't face up to to pain that wants to be distracted uh that part of us that needs to scroll constantly on a phone and uh compare be constantly comparing ourselves and our lives to others that part of us that um, doesn't want to heal, that wants to wallow in the more negative aspects of, of, of emotion. So he kind of represents all of that in a, a fluffy, squirrel, man-like creature. I'm interested in listening to you talk about technology there, the phones and the games and so on, uh, because you're an incredibly tech-savvy uh, person, <laughs> and yet gaming and mobile phones and the like, they just don't come off very well <laughs> in your story. <laughs> They're a distraction or an inoculation. I'm just really interested in that ambivalent relationship. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's something I definitely struggle with. I think I think we all do at some point. You know, there's a day hardy passive and you don't see someone on 
Twitter saying, well, I'm coming off. I'm coming off of Twitter for a while. Um, so I, I think technology is wonderful and has enabled so many things. But at the same time, it, it brings to the surface some of our, our worst leanings and attributes and, and, and can really put us in a bit of a, a pit of our own despair, especially with social media. I think especially for young people, when you hear about kind of online bullying or uh, people becoming withdrawn into their own sort of insular worlds. So I think like anything, there's great potential with technology, but that works both ways. Great potential for harm and great potential for, for amazing good. Um, and I was quite interested in exploring the ability tech has, especially kind of in this story, like computer games and social media and phones and what have you to sort of take up our time to sort of uh, distract us, to constantly distract us away from the things we need to be uh, facing up to. Uh, earlier on, you touched on the fact that the poems are written in different voices. You mentioned the librarian's voice that comes across. And there are others too. Some of them you're not so consciously aware of because they're not personified voices as such. So some are kind of internal and then there are external views. Um, how did that emerge through the writing? As the story dictated in many ways, uh, what I, I loved about this as a as a form as a, as a medium in terms of the, a poem told in stories is that when you're working with these little units these poems you're able to kind of focus in and, and take the story exactly to the point that you find is most interesting so I can tell a story in multiple voices from multiple angles because I'm I'm using that media I mean obviously you, you can do that in other mediums and well as well but I think poetry lends itself to that because poetry so often is about the, the moment about uh, condensing everything down to a wonderful moment in time or an emotion or a single feeling or a single voice um, and so I was able to you know it start to explore the story and watch the story unravel and it is is really a, a watching and a listening um, I find as opposed to a, a crafting um, and then you can start to highlight where where you want to put the focus you can start to pick out where you want to put the focus so that meant oh I can show Daphne through the librarian's eyes I can show Daphne through a kind of floating narrator's eyes um, I can uh, take us back in time and have conversations with, between her and her father between her and her mother but I can also take us to a whole mythic scene and explore the the Daphne myth, the Greek, the original Greek myth, um, and use all of that to be commenting on and taking the narrative forward. Um, so it, yeah, it kind of organically developed um, because I was using that form of, or focusing on poems to tell the story as opposed to telling a story in verse. Yeah, it is interesting. I think the form is so much a part of the meaning and if it was just a, a straightforward narrative you have to connect the bits in some way whereas you mm -hmm. you're freed from that in in writing yeah. in this particular way um tell us a little bit more you've you've touched on the mother there who oh i just had such even though she doesn't come in very often to the story i had such mm. feelings for this mother <laughs> yeah um probably because i am a mother <laughs> but the mother and the father tell us a little bit about them mother is a, a a nurse at a local hospital so she's 
working away a great deal, hence sort of Daphne being a, a, a latchkey kid. Um, but when her father was alive, he was a tree surgeon. And I, you know, being a lover of nature, I've always been slightly obsessed with tree surgeons and just, I always have to stop if I see them working in the streets. I think it's such an amazing job. And the fact that they're, yeah, it always looks quite brutal if you're just passing, you see them sort of lobbing off these branches. But they, they are forest managers in the, in the urban landscape, which I just think is wonderful. So I, I was really keen to explore that job through Daphne's father and it was ideal with her ending up in this kind of mythical magical wood um but dad's a lovely he was a, he was a, a lovely individual but who, who passed away and was very committed to his job um yeah we don't see as much of mum but mum is literally away away working but has also within Daphne's life or within Daphne's perspective has been away because Daphne has been so consumed by her grief and her mourning that she's kind of failed to see what is, what she does have. And she has a loving mother who is, you know, very keen and open and wanting to be there for her daughter. So it's about that, that relationship coming, coming back together. So we don't see her as much because Daphne isn't seeing her as much. Does that make sense? And it also shows that even with love being present that that doesn't necessarily stop times being difficult and uh it's just yeah. so beautifully written so i wondered whether we could talk a little bit about the illustrations of the mm. text which i thought were outstanding i really loved yeah. kate milner's illustrations here um not everybody can illustrate poetry i don't think but uh, somehow she's got the feel for it uh were there any illustrations that brought something additional to the poems that really pleased you yeah I mean I I look at her illustrations and I see more in my poems because uh, I'll, I'll see the illustration first and I say oh I wonder why why she's made that choice or why she's interpreted that way and then I'll read back through the poem and go oh of course she's bringing she will kind of lift and bring out other parts of the poem um, through her illustrations and and she kind of I feel like she approaches illustration with a with a poet's mind, um, if I can say that. Um, like one of the things that surprised me the most was her interpretation of Hawk, actually. She's made him such a, a huge force. He's a very imposing kind of character, which was very different to how I imagined him. But then it got me thinking about Daphne being, you know, a young teen and in this new world. And it, for me, Hawk becomes a a manifestation of her mourning, of her grief, of all the kind of negatives she's going through. And so he is this larger than life character uh, in the illustrations. Whereas in the actual, uh, I guess in my mind, I was imagining maybe something slightly smaller and um, squirrely, a bit more kind of cunning. But I just think it's so, what she's done is so right because she's illustrating the poems. She's illustrating the feeling behind the poems. Which I love. It's you know, her many of her illustrations are abstract, you know, and you start to see themes developing and uh, symbols kind of repeating themselves, uh, like the sort of tree motifs that pop up and and the use of um, what looks like at some point like photographs that she's used within the illustrations. So I, I yeah, I was just blown away when I saw what she what she had done. She's almost like she's created visual poems that work alongside. The, the poems I feel 
Mm, interesting. Um, while we're talking about the visual elements, of course, the book is designed to be read with the eye as well as the ear. Um, and there are quite a lot of decisions that have been made regarding typography and layout. I wonder the extent to which you were involved in that. Is it all from you or uh, is it partly a designer? How, how did that uh, come about? Uh, lots, lots of conversations with uh, designer Ariana and uh, with Janetta, her publisher, Janetta Otterberry. Um, there's a lot of back and forth and a, a lot of kind of questions and, you know, for, for instance, all the mythic poems, the poems dealing with um, uh, Daphne, the, the Greek myth of Daphne, are all on black paper which I felt was quite important to show that we're inhabiting a different space, even though we're still within the story, but we're, it's almost like a cutaway. Um, but then we have different fonts for the, some of the different voices. Um, and, and then some, the form of the poems dictate some of the decisions because I've got some concrete poems, which I was very keen on, on having in there because I really wanted to explore form. Uh, so there's pantoums and limericks and uh, sonnets and ballads and so I, I thought it was important to have some concrete shape poems in there so it, it was kind of a back and forth of suggestions of questions um, and intent all coming together. Writing a, a book like this a collection of poems that link together to tell a story it's very different from your other poetry collections and picture books I wondered whether there were any surprises or discoveries that you made for yourself during the creative process. Yeah, I've always, saying earlier, like I've always really enjoyed verse novels. And when I started out, I wasn't sure if this was going to be a kind of traditional verse novel or a poetry collection, um, or, or you know, as it ends up being something kind of in between. Um, and one thing I, I realized just how hard it is with a verse novel, kind of staying true to individual poems. Like the storytelling is, um, it really rises to the forefront. I think that's why verse novels are, are such wonderful, enjoyable reads because you're kind of pulled through. Um, but it, it becomes very hard to, to maintain the, the essence of poetry and, and individual poems. So that was a real challenge, kind of getting as close as I could to that kind of flowing narrative while still staying true to the poetry um, and and I was very clear from the outset that I wanted to explore different poetic forms so that yeah that was a real challenge and there's yeah lots of different versions lots of different lots of poems that did, didn't make it lots of times I got cut lots of different versions of the individual poems in different in different mediums. Interesting because you uh, at the same time, we're, we're avoiding using the term verse novel here, but in a sense, you had to develop some of the skills of the novelist too, because here's a character who develops through the course of the poems. And here's mm. a story that we have to reveal elements of it through the telling as well. Which is, is nice to have kind of more space to do, because, I mean, you know, you do that on picture books but you don't have the same amount of scope and it felt like in many ways returning to my sort of background in playwriting where you have just more breathing space and more opportunity to see a, a character develop 
and to but but what's great about the, the longer form of fiction you know is that you can start to show those little quirks um you can play with their language with how they say things you can highlight something that they are interested in yeah like daphne loves her the, the desk she's got a there's an old desk in the library that she always sits at that the librarian keeps for her but she talks about how she carries that desk with her in her mind and it, it, it's a source of comfort that she takes with her everywhere sort of within her within her own thoughts so it was lovely having that the space to really flesh out characters um and to do so poetically because then you can start to look at their their inner workings as well mm. i noticed actually in your library you'd uh retain some space for some archaeological glass cases <laughs> you were an archaeologist weren't you at one point or you studied archaeology yeah I, I studied archaeology I, I never became a, a full-time archaeologist but I, I was on a lot of digs as part of my as part of my course and sort of during the holidays of my degree um, but yeah it's, I, I kind of see these things as all being connected because it's even like writing and archaeology are very close bedfellows because it's you're unearthing story. You know, when archaeologists, you know, if you're, you know, be it from the digger to the, the the specialists working in their offices, uh, you know, with a box of bones, you're unearthing narrative. You're trying to work out what happened before you in a in a point in time, um, and that that element of discovery um, is very similar to definitely in my, in my process of writing which I've definitely struggled with over the years because there's so much written on on writing to structure and writing to form, you know, sort of planning out every chapter and the, the narrative arc, which can be a, a great way in, but I find that doesn't work for me. I find it is a, it's a slow, careful uncovering of something, which in some ways you feel already exists. It's like that old saying about that Michelangelo, about doing sculptures, and how he's just there. Yeah, it's there in the yeah. stone waiting to to be yeah. uncovered. Certainly one of those Renaissance uh yeah. It feels like that. It it feels like that. And that you need to allow space and time, you need to listen. And it's almost like the, the story is is there and you're just kind of marking black ink around the spaces of the words. Fascinating. Well, Joe, can I thank you so much for talking to us in the reading corner today about the girl who became a tree? And thank you for gifting us this book as well. Uh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure and such an, an honour to take part. Thank you. Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.